Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. Stop, it's time. Live, breaking down a draw in Seattle for Atlanta United. Looking ahead to Nashville, who hasn't given up a goal since 1993, it seems like. Uh, We'll talk MLS as well. Your questions, we'll get into it. Everything's fair game in the soccer world. Fire them away in the comments section. And Mike, uh, the Seattle game was an interesting one. Like I really enjoyed calling it. I thought there was a lot of maybe a lot under the surface in this one. There was a lot of meat on the bone in this game to <laughs> me. There was a lot to talk about. It's a late equalizer for Atlanta. I think they come out of it feeling really good about the work they put in and a little bit of a boost over the last couple of weeks heading into a tough one with Nashville. Hey, listen, I mean, you got a result this coming Saturday, and you will go into the international break unbeaten in your last five competitions. That's pretty good. So what they did on Sunday, I think, provides them like, okay, there's your springboard. Now you got to go and jump on it and and utilize that springboard to go into the international break, which is going to be meaningful. It's going to be three weeks where uh, this group can really work on some things. But no, I, I was... Very, very pleased with what I saw on Sunday. And maybe I was pleased because I had relatively low expectations. Um, And it it has really nothing to do with Atlanta United. I I think it was more just, wow, Seattle at home. They're playing so well. Only conceded twice all year. They're scoring a bazillion goals. 
this is just going to be so tough for Atlanta United flying 3,000 miles away from home. No doubt the, the toughest fixture on the sheet all year. Um, so I had a low bar for expectations, but they were massively exceeded. And it just goes to show you the value of the late goal and, and how you can feel for a couple days after that. Uh, Miami was a draw that kind of felt like a loss to me at the time because it was a late goal, even though Atlanta United was was kind of wearing down and the heat and the fatigue was really setting in. When you have a lead with 15 minutes to play plus stoppage, you feel like you got a pretty decent chance of winning. Mm-hmm. Didn't happen mm-hmm. to Atlanta United and Miami. Seattle, you know, when you have a lead with five minutes plus stoppage to play at home, you feel like you're probably going to win that match. They didn't. You know, they're they're probably feeling a little bit bad about it. But I think the comments by Brian Schmetzer and Christian Roldan after the game on Sunday were very, very telling. Mm -hmm. Because it felt to me, after the Rui Diaz goal in the sixth minute, that Atlanta United was controlling the match. It really felt that way to me. Did it look pretty? Did it look sexy? No. But they were controlling the match. And when you hear Schmetzer and... Christian rolled on talking about how their wingbacks kept getting pinned back because of the way Atlanta United was playing. Uh, that to me tells me that Atlanta United went into Seattle and dictated the terms. They, they blew up a little bit defensively on a set piece that has happened this year, that soccer, and that's going to happen. But I thought the draw was the fair result. I thought Atlanta United deserved to get something out of that match. They did. Now let's see what they do with it. You know, they were, They fought really, really hard to get that late goal against Montreal. We said after that, let's see what they do with this now. It could be a springboard. Um, Well, they did something with it. They carried that momentum into Seattle. They got a positive result. I think this Nashville match, in some ways, might even be tougher than the one they just played, even though it's at home. And we'll get into it later. Nashville's going to be really, really tough to break down. Mm -hmm. Two lines of four. uh, They're going to concede possession, try to hit on the counter, and that's going to be... Not a very fun match to experience from an observational standpoint on Saturday, but at least Atlanta United now has given themselves a chance where if you can go into that international break with a win, unbeaten in your last five competitions, that's going to put them not top of table in the East, but it's probably going to have them third or fourth at worst. Um, That's where you want to be. That's where you want to be going into... Uh, a period of time, like I said, where you can work on some things and, and try to get this final third finally tied down. Look, the final third's difficult against a team that, that does get pinned back and, and does decide to sit back. And you're going to see the, the latter against Nashville. You saw the former in Seattle where part of the effectiveness of what Atlanta United does is in controlling the game. I think the intent is to be sexy with their style of play. I think the intent is to have that creativity in the final third. It's not happening yet because that takes time to develop. Chemistry takes time to develop. But when you control a match, when you pin an opponent deep, it limits the space, and it limits the space to operate in. And it's twofold. It keeps you generally outside of giving up breaks, giving up set pieces, it keeps you in a much more advantageous place defensively because you're defending far away from your own goal. The other team's not getting into your half and camping out and putting you under that pressure. But what it also does is it puts more of a, I think it puts more pressure on you 
to be able to break down an opponent that you have pinned deep. And that's something Atlanta United has to do a better job of. You know, we talked about it a good bit on Sunday, the crosses and the work to create the crosses. I think the work to create the crosses is good. Uh, I think the, the movement from the back to getting into the final third is good. The movement inside of the final third at times is too slow. And that's movement off the ball by people making runs off the ball to open up space. It's also delivering the ball. It's both. That needs to improve. That has to step up, and that's going to have to be a focal point going forward for this team. They know that. Gabriel Heinze said it many, many times. Players have said it as well. That's the next step. But you can't get there without doing everything else the team is doing. It is a process. You, you can't put the roof on the house until you build the foundation and the walls. And I feel like right now Atlanta United's in a position where you're about ready to put the roof on this thing. It's really getting close because everything else is building in the right way. And when you get those comments from Brian Schmetzer and Christian Roldan about how Atlanta took them out of what they like to do, Bradley Smith really didn't have an impact on the game in the attacking end. Alex Roldan, very little impact in the attacking end. That's how Seattle has hurt teams all year long. They weren't able to do that. They were kind of reduced into sitting back deep at home, time-wasting at home in a game where you know they came in as a, as a good favorite, and they didn't really deliver on that. You have to give Atlanta credit for it. Can Atlanta be better? Yes. When the final third clicks, that's when things open up. When Atlanta can, I think, realize kind of that next step of you pin the opponent, that helps you defensively. It limits the opportunities for the opponent. That's very good. You love those kinds of numbers. Okay. However, now it's crowded space. How do you deal with crowded space? You're able to move faster, make decisions faster, deliver passes faster. When you can play faster in that final third and be more creative, that's when you can take advantage of everything else you've built. Not yet. It hasn't happened yet. No Ezekiel Barco. No Jurgen Dom. That's part of it, because those are two guys who can pick a pass and can unlock teams. You don't have them, so Atlanta United has to find another way. I think we're seeing some of it with a Jake Mulraney, who is starting to unlock things. We saw Miles Robinson unlock things with a ball over the top, and Brooks Lennon getting in behind. It's hard to get in behind when the opponent sits deep. You have to find that balance of pinning them but also drawing them out from time to time and dropping that ball in. There's elements that Atlanta's starting to show that they're starting to figure out how to do this, but it's still not there yet, and it needs to be there against a team like Nashville, who is not going to be pinned in. They're going to sit back. <laughs> they're going to camp out. The tent is already in their half of the field at Mercedes-Benz Stadium. They snuck in. They put up the tents. <laughs> they're ready to go to sit back deep. That's how they're going to play it. So Atlanta comes in knowing, okay, this is what we have to deal with. They're not going to get a whole bunch of numbers forward. They are good on the break. When they get Randall Leal and Alex Moyle out in space, they can be a problem. But in general, you're going to see six, sometimes eight bright yellow tints in the final third that you've got to find a way around. This, I think, is going to feel a lot like the Colorado match in 2019 
um, or uh, even a match against FC Dallas, um, maybe also in 2019. Um, but uh, Colorado is, is the one match in 2019 that really stands out to me as a team that, that came in it, and it, it, it's going to be different than Colorado because Colorado, I don't think had any ambition. I, I think Nashville yeah. has ambition. They do. There is a difference between being just committing to d- playing defensively as Nashville will and Colorado who just had zero ambition, uh, putting 10 players behind the ball. But it's going to feel a lot like that. It's going to be very, very hard to break them down. And I can already hear the murmurs already. Um, it, it's it's an effective tactic for Nashville. It's yeah. why they're unbeaten right now. It's why they're 2-0 and 4. Well, look at it's the why- response from Gary Smith. Because at the beginning, we talked about it first couple weeks of the season. It's like, Nashville's giving up two goals a game? What? What's happening? Right. What did Gary Smith do? He said, we're not having this happen anymore. And they went eventually to a 4-4-2, which they've sacrificed Hani Mukhtar, one of their designated players. He's not starting right now, to get CJ Sapong in, which gives them the ability to play long, two up top, look for a knockdown, look for a flick on, keep it simple, but get eight guys behind the ball typically, and Leal and Muil are the two who are going to break out. They... They're not playing Rodrigo Pinheiro, the the young Uruguayan that they brought in to be more creative. Um, they're not playing Mukhtar. So, you know, with, with those guys off the field, it's it's lunch pail time for Nashville. It's bomb it long, look for a, a, a 50-50 aerial duel and a flick on, and that's it. Well, look, we're getting a lot of questions and comments. I think we should just dive right yeah, in. Yeah, let's it. do it. I, I will say this just briefly, back to the Seattle match. I understand that if you score a goal, you're pretty much automatically going to be on the MLS team of the week because not everyone can watch every match in the voting pool. Right. Uh, right. Jason and I don't get votes on that. Nope. In fact, I, nope. for team of the week, I, I don't know if that's a media vote or if it's just done by MLS staff. I, I'm not sure. I know player of the week is a media vote. Yeah. J- Jason and I don't vote on that either. Nope. I thought, long story short, Miles Robinson was a big omission for team of the week this mm-hmm. week. Uh, I think anyone who would have watched the match on Sunday put his defending off to the side. Uh, Miles Robinson, that perfectly weighted pass to Brooks Lennon that put Brad Smith in that spot where he had to take the penalty, basically. Um, I I just thought Miles played so brilliantly on Sunday and was worthy of a team of the week nine. I'm a little disappointed he didn't get it. I know that's a little thing. but I'll campaign uh, for Franco Ibarra as well. I mean, as the chairman of the Holding Midfielders Appreciation Society, they never get any love. Uh, Six tackles, four interceptions, and everything that Ibarra did on the ball. Franco Ibarra was Pac-Man out there on on Sunday, and that's a huge game for him. He had some like that at Argentinos Juniors before he came here where he'd have a couple of games where you could see he's, he's a young player still figuring it out. And then he'd he'd play a a big team and have a big performance. And he did that multiple times at Argentinos in his 10 games there in in the fall. This was a big performance. And if Franco Ibarra can start to put those kinds of performances together, you know the defending is there, but the attacking part. And it's the same for Miles. You know the defending is there. When he can start hitting passes like that, you're talking about two potentially elite players in this league. Yeah, no doubt about it. Okay, uh, let's start with Tom Russo because it's kind of a broad question. I think we can go from there. Okay. Uh, Tom says, I think we all know why 
the attack is stalling in the final third. But what must be done specifically to develop some creativity and different attacking strategy to remedy that? It's not an easy answer, Tom. I mean, that, that's the, the hardest thing about this game is any top manager will tell you it, it's, it's far easier to be destructive than to be creative in, in building a, a way of playing. I can pretty easily create a plan to take everything you want to do away. You know, most often it's get numbers behind the ball, it's sit deep, it's pick your spots to get out, it's things like that. There's a textbook for it. It's not hard. The attacking part, it's not easy. And a lot of times it comes down to talent, and you're missing a couple of talented players in Ezekiel Barco and Jurgen Dom. There's just no way around that, and I know people have their feelings on both of them. But those are two creative players. Those are two players who can make something out of nothing and also break a team down. So with them being absent, I think what it falls back to is playing and thinking faster. And the specific element that we talked about on Sunday a lot was something that has been okay previously in the season, and I thought it was an issue on Sunday. And you have to give Seattle some credit here because I think they made it difficult with their alignment. But Joseph Martinez dropping into the midfield, that's a good thing. It's it's hard to be a forward who just stands still and waits for delivery and is standing flat-footed and expected to go up and win headers or be standing flat-footed and then react to a, a ball played through because if you're standing flat-footed, you're going to have two defenders on you and there's not going to be room for you to get to that ball. So dropping into the midfield is good. But what happened too much on Sunday was he would drop, he'd get a touch, he'd help create an opportunity to play it out wide, and then Atlanta wasn't able to get the ball in as Joseph was arriving back to the final third. You want him on the run arriving to the ball. That's not happening right now. Against Seattle, I do think some of it was down to Roldan and Smith and good defending from them, also getting help from the midfield and making it difficult for that to happen. Okay. You've got to learn and you've got to get through that. I think playing faster and trusting teammates around you is going to be the way to do it without a Barco or a Dom who can break it down 1v1. Marcelino Moreno can to a degree, and he needs to continue to try to do that on the dribble as much as possible because that's one of the strong suits that this team has. But the delivery has to be quicker. It has to be sharper. Lennon and Bello need to get more involved in that. Lennon, we know, is very involved. But Bello, I'd love to see him more involved, especially when Ibarra is on the field because I feel like with two center backs, and you're going to be going up against two forwards again against Nashville, with Sosa, who can be a little bit of a floater, can drop in and help you defend with a third center back as needed, but can also step out in possession. Ibarra gives you another central midfielder who can drop, and you can defend with four against their two and sometimes the third man coming. That's fine. That frees up Bello to go more. And I think in the past we saw Bello sit a little bit more, want to be careful about when he goes, George Bellow can break things down in the final third. Would love to see him more involved and make it difficult for teams to camp out on Lennon on the right, continue to spread that field wide and, and make more space in between a team that's going to sit deeper. Yeah, Tom follows up with this, and uh, it, uh, I really respect Tom a lot and enjoy interacting Tom's good with people. Him. And he's a great guy and asking good questions. He follows up with this. 
He says, I thought I was watching a replay every time Lennon was on the right wing near the 18, just standing with the ball, trying to decide if he wanted to send it across, beat his man one-on-one, or another option. Mm -hmm. Seemed like that happened a lot. I'm not quite sure if it was that static, but I do get the general gist. It did at times. It did more than I'm used to with Lennon, and I think some of that's down to Bradley Smith doing a good job in closing it down and not giving him that space. That's, That's a little bit of the difference with a line of five versus a line of four. And Seattle turned into a line of five with their three center backs and Smith and Alex rolled on sitting deeper. There wasn't as much space. That's when it has to go faster. And and Lennon needed to recognize it quicker that, okay, the crosses aren't going to be there as fast this time. We're going to have to do it a different way. Instead of trying to figure out, can I find the space to beat this guy, move the ball quicker, and then also move. I think Emerson Hindman was the one who was trying to use movement off the ball to drag people out and create space. And he's, he's so good at it. He runs so much in a match. Others have to do that as well. That interchange has to be better. I think Hindman has been incredible this year. Really, he really has. That's one a good of shot. the unsung stories. And you know what's interesting, Jason, is when we went into training camp, we thought maybe the biggest position battle uh, in this team was going to be Heinemann or Josetu for one mm-hmm. of those kind of dual eight roles. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, now Josetu is back, and I- I'm glad that he got in for a few minutes on on Sunday. But boy, oh boy, Heinemann would be very, very difficult to take out of this team right now the way he's playing. 100%. I, I said Heinemann needed to earn it. I thought he would get the opportunity first. I think he would have even if Hosetu hadn't missed some time getting the green card sorted out. But Heinemann has earned it. He, he's been outstanding. And I think he gets, as such a smart player, I think he gets what is being built. And and look, it takes time. I mean, you know, I remember hearing and seeing some of the same things with Pep at Manchester City, with Pep at Bayern at the very beginning. Now, the biggest difference in those cases was they were trying to figure out the same things that Atlanta United's trying to figure out. You know, you're you're playing teams that are now saying, well, we're not going to let them beat us. We're going to sit back, and we're going to take everything away from them. What Pep had against a lot of those teams, not all, but a lot, at a city and at a Bayern, was far more talent. Far more talent. And then it gets down to, my talent's better, and yes, you're going to make it difficult, but I, I just have better players the talent gap is never going to be like that in MLS because of the way the league's structured. So that's where I think coaches can have an even bigger impact as they figure that out because you can't just say, you know, as, as Pepe said he did at Barcelona, just give it to Messi, he'll figure it out. You don't have that. You will very rarely have that opportunity in this league. So the creativity from a, a tactical perspective, from a coach is very, very important. And that's why this upcoming break, I'm excited to see what Gabriel Heinze is able to work out and some of the patterns of play to solve some of these issues we're talking about. Uh, Abby says that she was hoping that since Seattle had a new goalkeeper, in uh, air quotes, because Cleveland was, I'm sure, compared to Fry, much less experienced. Yeah. Uh, that uh, she hoped that Atlanta United players would sometimes take shots and then have players in position to get rebounds if they were spilled because you can't always wait for the perfect shot. Yeah, I don't hate the concept of of taking longer shots, especially against a goalkeeper who's finding their footing. Um, 
it was something that there was a lot of complaints about in the past uh, yeah. about you know Pitti Martinez taking shots from distance against the same kind of situations uh, with as Frank DeBoer's team was trying to figure out how to deal with these situations. He would pop a shot from distance, and that would generate a lot of complaints. Um, the players shouldn't react to to the complaining. I'm I'm, I'm kidding a little bit with it, but. <laughs> <laughs> when a team does sit back, that is a tactic that you can use to try to draw them out. I think in general, Atlanta wants to draw them out by working the ball back to front, front to back, and around. That needs to happen faster, but you can draw them out to hit the ball that Miles Robinson hit. The other way is to take some shots from distance. I'd love to see Heinemann let loose from time to time. Um, I think it, he's got the ability to hit those shots. Ibarra has shown that he has the ability to hit those shots. When Sosa steps up, when he interacts and, and switches with, with Ibarra, love to see that. Uh, Lennon and Bello, I think, also do have that. Instead of you know looking for the cross every time, sometimes look for that shot when it's on. I'm good with it. I'm good with it. I don't want to see shooting just to shoot. But yeah, if, if the space is there and the team has taken away some of those opportunities... Let it rip from distance. Let it rip from 25. I'm okay with that. Uh, Abby, also on your uh, remarks about Heinemann, says Heinemann reminds her a lot of Michael Parker's because he sees the field as a whole and anticipates. Yeah, it's a good shout. Um, I mean, he's his position's different, so he's able to do some different things. But, yeah, he he sees the the game in a bigger way. And I think he's one of the guys who's willing to make those runs off the ball that pretty sure you're not going to get rewarded with a pass and yeah it takes energy out of you you know it, it, it's just a, something not everybody can do every single time he seems to find a way to do it more than most and, and that's a good thing because it does open up that space when when he makes a run off the ball for example Ibarra then drops and Sosa then takes the space where Heinemann was that's really difficult for an opponent to deal with because you're like well, he's over there no he's back what and you get confused. That interplay, as this team gets more comfortable, we're seeing more of it, which is not a surprise. It needs to continue to grow and foster and happen more and more. And I wouldn't have expected the midfield trio of Heinemann, Ibarra, and Sosa to develop it in the way that they have, but they're finding ways to, to shake it up a little bit. It's interesting. They've been phenomenal. They really, really have. Um, conversation in the comments, uh, Shiva and Emilio, and I think Tom's been in this too. Um, but going back to Nashville, mm -hmm. their philosophy, like we talked about at the very beginning, they're going to play four, four, two, two lines of four. Um, Shiva asks the question that I think a lot of people have about teams like Nashville. And again, Nashville has been effective. They haven't lost yet this year, but Shiva says, why don't some teams just want to play? What is the point of sitting back? It's very frustrating to her. Uh, and look, as an observer, I don't like watching it either. I don't like watching teams sit back and try to hit on the counter. Mm -hmm. But it is an effective strategy to produce wins, I guess. It can be uh, if you do it well, and especially on the road. I, I, I understand it a lot more when you're on the road as opposed to being at home. That's where Seattle will, will drive me insane sometimes. Uh, watch Nashville at home and watch them on the road, and it looks like a different team sometimes. I, I think also in their case, I get it in that they're in their second year. They haven't hit on a couple of attacking players that I expected them to. Um, Jean de Cadiz, 
really hasn't given them a ton. They've got a decision to make on his his loan coming up at the end of June. Probably will extend it, but he hasn't exactly lit things up. Uh, CJ Sapong has been around the league for a long time. I think we know who he is at this point. Solid player. He's not going to put up 15, 20 goals a year. Uh, Hani Mukhtar is a designated player, has been good, but maybe not the right fit for that team. Uh, Randall Leal, I love as a player. He he terrifies me a little bit because he can break out of sitting deep and cause you problems. And he can shoot from distance. He, he has one of the best long-range shots I've seen in this league ever. Um, but then, you know, Alex Moyle's the perfect Nashville kind of player, in my mind. A, a scrappy, hardworking, blue-collar, lunch-pale guy who can cause you some problems. He, he's not, he's a good player. Like He can do some things in the final third, but the majority of his game is based off work rate. It's just it's, it's an easier way to build a team. There's less risk to it. But even Nashville's had some misses on building a team that way. You want to play, it's riskier. And, and that's what's so interesting in the, the conversation about Atlanta United right now, comparing the local conversation to the national conversation, um, even to the international conversation at times, is I think maybe the further away from Atlanta people are, I think there's more of an appreciation of what Atlanta's trying to do in terms of trying to play. They they want the ball, which is a step in the right direction. They They want to be an attacking team. Maybe they don't know how to be that yet because of what opponents are doing and because of some of the absences and because it's just time with, with Gabriel Heinze. But the idea that they want to play, I think it's clear. I think it's clear to people who maybe don't have the emotional connection to it and don't really call it boring like sometimes I think we hear locally. So that's kind of fascinating to me. I think Nashville is a team that really has shown you who they are right now, they they want to pack it in. They want to be careful. They'll open up a little bit more at home, but not much. They want to have eight behind the ball, and they want to break out when the time is right. Atlanta's not that at all. They want to have seven, eight, nine in the attacking half at all times, and they want to play on that edge. But they don't want to do it in a reckless manner like we see San Jose and D.C. do at times. There is an element of control in their game. And that's why I, the more that I've learned about Gabriel Heinze from watching him here in Atlanta now, watching his teams, you know, listening to some of the things he's saying, going back and looking at Velez, he is so much more of a Pep Guardiola, Luis Enrique influenced manager than Bielsa. I, I get the Bielsa link. But Bielsa does have a control element to his teams. But he will sacrifice control for other things. Where Pep, Luis Enrique, and Heinze will build a tactical plan based off the opponent. They'll adjust to how they think they can hurt the opponent. But most importantly, they want control and they want the ball at all times to be able to handle that control. There, there, that's a difference. It's a very important difference. But I, I think Atlanta wants to play. I think Nashville is comfortable letting the opponent play and playing off of the opponent, what they do. Atlanta wants to dictate the game. Nashville will react to what the opponent does. It's a big difference. It's funny you bring up Alex Wheel, by the way. You know, I haven't really seen this mentioned broadly uh, 
I'm sure someone else has noticed this, but did you notice how Nashville really got hot after they acquired Alex Wheel mm-hmm. last year? I don't think that's a coincidence. No, not at all. Uh, Nashville played brilliantly the final two months of the regular season. Uh, and it really started once they made that Alex Wheel trade. Uh, remember, Nashville coming out of the tournament, which they didn't even play in, uh, one of their first matches after the tournament last year was a 2-0 loss at Atlanta, uh, where Pitti Martinez scored twice. They went out, they got Alex Wheel. That really turned their season around, I thought. 100%. Uh, okay, Tommy has a random twos question. We're going to kind of go Love all it. over that. Yeah, let's do it. I, I like uh, randomness. Tommy uh, says, no wolf on Sunday. What's up with that? Also, were the pictures on his Instagram from prom? I don't yes, know about that. I don't they were. <laughs> they were. He, he said uh, that they were, I think it was late prom pictures. Uh, he had a good week last week. He posts some prom pictures, gets a couple of goals. Um, it's a good week for Tyler Wolf. I, I I don't know why he wasn't in the team on Sunday. I, I wasn't there, so I, I didn't hear anything about reasoning why. Um, some of it could have just bound to been down to playing two games in the week already because they were in Oklahoma on the previous Sunday. They played midweek against Tulsa on the Wednesday and then had another match. Uh, there's also always that rotation of wanting to see other players, getting guys fresh. The twos will always have a component to that. So I, I don't think it's anything to worry about that I know of, but Wolf didn't play and yeah, it looks like he had a good prom. <laughs> I good, hope he did. Good, good for Tyler. Uh, no, it's great. Um, Matt Wagner, actually a couple people asking about Ronnie. Uh, but Matt says, uh, Ronnie's this rumored signing, emphasizing for Jason that it is a rumor. rumor. However, he is wondering <laughs> if this is an indicator that Atlanta would be a player in the summer transfer window for another attacking <sighs> option, likely at the designated player level. It hasn't gone anywhere since the initial rumor. So I'm, I'm a little skeptical. I don't think it indicates anything because... Who knows if there's actually any smoke to it? You know, it, it could just be, it could very easily be. And I, I think uh, as I've, I've tried to make sure I've got this one right. Um, I think it is Honi, if I'm, if I'm technically correct, uh, Brazilian. Yeah, I, my Portuguese ain't so. Great, I, I, so it's, it's hard for me. I, I went through seriously like a whole bunch of. Okay, I think this is right. I think this is right. I think this is right. Um, Portuguese also gets anglicized maybe more than than most languages too. So I I think he would probably answer to both. But um, I don't. It could be his agent putting this out there because also as part of it, and we did talk about it on, on SDH, and I stressed it was a rumor many many times. I, I feel like we're gonna have to get like. El Chiringuito, the the Spanish television, where we have a music bed for rumors specifically, so you know it's different. Um, (laughs) I feel like we need that at this point. It could purely be rumor about driving up his price at Palmetto's because he is in the midst of a contract renewal negotiation, according to Brazilian media. They want to lock him up through 2025. He is, up to this point, declined the options to extend his contract. They have a player coming back from a loan in the Middle East who the, that club did not purchase this player's deal, coming back in the same position. That complicates things for Palmetto. So they, they've also had a not-so-great time after winning the Libertadores last year, uh, and Honey was a big part of that. You know, In, in Libertadores games in 2020 and 2021, 
he is scoring and assisting a lot. I don't have the numbers in front of me, but more than one goal plus assists per game. He's been that good in Libertadores. And I think it's very easy to get mixed up on Brazilian players because they play in comma ball competition. They have their domestic league. They have their state league. And they take time off because you can't play 70, 80 games a year, although they try to make them do that in Brazil because they're insane. So his domestic numbers have dipped a little bit, but Palmeiras was focused on winning the Libertadores, and then that was the focus. So he's a talented player. He's a player that, you know, I've talked to South American experts, and he's one of those guys with his performances in the Libertadores that people have expected to move on. Now I think what you're starting to see, and he's 26, so he's not that 18-year-old Brazilian that European clubs will come by based off potential, He's 26. A lot of times those guys would still find their way to Europe or maybe find their way to a Mexican club. Now, with the Brazilian influx into MLS, they're looking at what MLS can do for these guys. And I think Pitti Martinez's saga is is exactly one that would appeal to somebody like Honey and his agent because he was a little bit older. He hadn't gotten the move to Europe yet. He came to MLS and... Not too long after he got here, he got an opportunity to go and triple his salary, which was already a big increase from being in South America, and make a profit on a transfer. That's going to appeal to those mid-20s guys now, who maybe a little bit later bloomer, maybe looking waited to get that opportunity until they were a little bit older and missed out on the European cash early. So if there is legitimacy to it, then... I don't think I'm surprised because Atlanta's always been a club that is willing to listen to opportunities. I don't know if it means anything more than that. But this player might not be leaving Palmettis, and I think there's far more complicated situations with this rumor than just, yeah, Atlanta wants him. I think there's a lot more to it, a lot more going on. Yeah, and and I think one other element to this um, is that it's becoming clear now that Atlanta United's organizational philosophy is to be a player in international transfer windows and especially be a player in trying to pluck up and coming talent out of South American, Latin American parts of the world. Undervalued Uh, talent, I think is maybe even a better way to put it because they'll go a little older at times. If the, the right player, I mean, Marcelino Moreno was an undervalued talent. Great point. Great, great point. Agents now know this, and that's why if an agent, and I'm not saying that is the case here with Ronnie, Juani, however we're going to pronounce it. <laughs> you don't want to say Ronnie. No, I, I'm serious. It, like there, There's an actual reason to this, because some of those Brazilian names do get anglicized. Absolutely. Like, it, it, remember uh, Fred, uh, the yeah. Brazilian player Fred? So I, I'm wondering if it is an attempt at, anglicizing the name and he's well, Ronnie. But like in, Ronnie in, down the street. in this case it depended on who you were listening to on on oh. Fred or Fresh. Fresh. Yeah. Well he's gonna be Fred to me. <laughs> I, I, I thought well but but see that's the thing. Like they do respond to both. They do. Uh, um, they do. So anyhow. We will figure if, it out if he arrives. <laughs> if he comes here if the rumors are true, we'll get it figured out. Johannes, I'm sure, is already on it, uh, <laughs> if there's anything behind it. But I would just say this. It, it's very, very clear that Atlanta United, as a name, is going to be used by agents now for players in 
Kwani situation. Uh, and it's not just going to be him. We saw a false rumor a couple months ago about a player down there uh, being linked to Atlanta United as a Joseph Martinez replacement. Uh, and it got debunked pretty quickly, but the agent was exposed basically for just throwing Atlanta United's name at a reporter down there uh, because the Atlanta United brand has some credibility and has been linked to numerous players in those situations before. But it doesn't mean those rumors are ever true. It doesn't always mean they're false either. Right. But just keep that in mind. I think what Jason's telling you is very, very important here. Uh, and this is part of the peril of being a big club, by the way. Yeah, that, it's not a bad you know, thing. The news yeah. cycle is going to handle rumors involving a big club in a certain way. But if you're a smart agent representing a player like Juani, uh, I hope I said that right. Uh, look, Atlanta United's absolutely a name that you can throw as bait to a reporter to maybe get a little bit of um, angst drummed up with Palmeiras. I, I think the thing to keep in mind is if you are an aging European player and your agent is trying to get <laughs> you a deal, you will be linked to enter Miami, uh, <laughs> possibly the L.A. Galaxy. If you are a young or mid-20s South American player or Mexican player, um, you will be linked to Atlanta United because that's what is out there now. So, yeah, I mean, it, it, it was back in the very beginning days that players, all kinds of players were linked to Atlanta United. And the explanation was they, they have mucha plata. They have a lot of money. And right. now that's still the case. So... Agents will use it as leverage. It does happen all the time in South America. There could be something to it. There might not be anything to it. But as an attacking player, he checks a lot of boxes. He's, he's a very talented player. Um, you like talent. So could it happen? Sure. Doesn't mean there's ever been a conversation about it actually happening. Jacob Abara asks, and Jacob, I hope you're still with us because I know you asked this a while ago. Random question. When was the last time Atlanta United actually scored off a direct corner kick? I feel like it's been oh, forever. That is a really good question. I know they had one in Columbus in 2018. That was Joseph. I think yeah. Joseph broke his nose on that play, he did. actually. He did. He came uh, down as, as somebody made a late jump. Yeah. Um, since then, and I remember Darren even joked about that. Like, hey, look, we scored off a corner. Yeah. Uh, because that was kind of a critique of the Tata Martino teams that uh, that they never really scored off a corner. I, I'm sure Jacob isn't referring to an Olympico, like a, 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 no, a direct no. corner kick that actually goes in. Because that's never happened for Atlanta United. No. I know that. God, that'll be great. Uh, wow, direct corner kick. Well, you know what? Hold, hold on. Hold the phone. Uh -oh. uh, would would SofaScore have that? Um, It might be hard to actually break it down. Well, yeah. Ugh. If anyone knows, respond in the comments, because I think there has been one since. I believe uh, there uh, has been. You know what? You know what? What? Jason, did Jeff Lorenowitz score off a corner at D.C. later in that 2018 season? I think he could have. Hmm. There was a Lorenowitz hmm. goal in that match. I feel like that's something that would have come off a corner. It's, I, I, I seem to remember Jeff getting a goal from a set piece. I don't remember if it was a corner specifically. Yeah. Also, in Portland in 2019, 
I feel like Leandro's goal in that match may have been off a scramble that started with a corner. Again, uh, if you guys know, type it in in the comment. I don't think they had any last year, and they certainly haven't had any this no, year. No, I'm, I'm looking back sure. at 2020. Football Reference has something that I'd have to go deeper once we get into it, but they have uh, a breakdown of goal-created actions. And there yeah. were two goal-created actions from dead ball situations last year. Barco had one and Moreno had one. Barco scored on a direct free kick last year, if I remember correctly. Do you know the match? I, I want to say it was Nashville, but I could be completely wrong on that. I think he scored directly on a free kick. I don't like remember Moreno. In the 4-2 Nashville, I the one where so. they got blown out? I think so. Because Pitti scored twice in August, and Barco's goal in Nashville on February 29th was an open play. Yeah, I think it um, was in the 4-2. The um, but that no, that was... Sorry, that wouldn't even make sense, because that's a goal-created action on a pass. So that wouldn't even work. Um, hmm... Yeah, I'll have to do some digging. I don't know off the top of my head, but that's a good uh, that's a good project. You got us thinking. You yes. got us thinking, Jacob. Now, let me take Jacob's question a different way, uh, because I think we are seeing some variety right now in how Atlanta United is handling corners. Mm -hmm. uh, we've seen a couple short corners. We even saw one where they played a corner uh, back into the midfield yep. and tried to change the point of attack that way. When we talk about things that Atlanta United will be able to do during the international break, I would think we're going to see at least a little bit of time yeah. for Heinze to install some creativity and some set pieces. Uh, I don't know how far he's going to want to go with that, but if he wants to, he'll have some time. Yeah, I'll be curious to see how he handles it. There was one somewhat creative free kick that we've seen recently, too, so... I think generally you'll see short corners. Generally, it will be a corner to keep possession and prevent a, a quick counter for the opposition. But you can get creative with those. Uh, definitely needs to improve the attacking set pieces in these situations. I mean, a, a free kick going to goal is pretty much down on the individual taking it. Uh, but a free kick where you're chipping it in or a corner, there is some work to be done on improving those. They definitely need to improve on defending them, as we saw with Rui Diaz beating Lennon to the spot. Seattle's a tough team to mark, but that needed to be better, and it, it, it put Atlanta behind on Sunday. All right, Jay Gregory has a question about Anton Walks and Alan Franco. He says, Walks has earned his starting position. Mm -hmm. So how mm -hmm. do you take him out, yet how would you sit an expensive designated player would Heinze employ a formation with Robinson walks and Franco in the back? He will only do that when the opponent plays three or plays two up top. He won't play a third center back and take away an attacking possibility just to play somebody. He won't do it. Uh, it's a tough spot because you have three starting center backs and you're generally against teams that play a four three three or four two three one or any variation of the above you're going to play two center backs. So I do love the possibility that we haven't had a chance to see yet against teams that play two up top of Franco, Walks, and Robinson all in the back with Sosa higher up the field. We haven't had a chance to see that yet. But I don't think you force three center backs on the field to take an attacking option off the field. That does not fit 
Gabriel Heinze's philosophy at all. And then it comes down to who's you know the better at the time with the three of them. And and there's always the possibility that Robinson sits from time to time and and Franco and and walks play. Franco's got to get healthy. He's got to get the ankle right. Uh, I don't know if it is a knock or a ligament issue, but he played 45 and had to come off, and it was uh, reportedly very painful. That's what was said after that match, and he wasn't able to go the next week. I'm assuming it is more in the sprain kind of situation than a kick for it to linger another week, and and we'll have to see if he's available to go the Saturday. Uh, Champions League. Yep. Brooks Lenton is picking Chelsea. I picked Chelsea to win it a long time ago. Um, it pained me a little bit because I've always had a ton of respect for what Pep Guardiola's done and the way he sees the game, and, and especially this year. I think he's had one of his better coaching performances this year as he's changed some things in midstream to uh, make that team better. But what Thomas Tuchel's done since taking over amazing at Chelsea and they've had Manchester City's number you know it's hard to beat a team three times in a row and that's what Chelsea's going for here because they beat him in the league they knocked him out of the FA Cup I think it goes to extra time I think it's tight Uh, I think Chelsea does try to take away what Manchester City does well and they try to hit out on the break where they are lightning fast and very dangerous I think it's 1-1 and it goes to extra time and I think Chelsea ends up finding a way to win so we have about 10 minutes left in the program, and I feel like we could talk about this for an hour, but I want to get your thoughts on a couple different Twitter conversations I've seen in the last few days. Oh, boy. About, no, I I mean, you and I, we feel very, very passionately about this, but there has been some second guessing of uh, Major League Soccer for scheduling fixtures during the Champions League final on Saturday. Separately, Stephen Goff, uh, who does a really, really good job of tweeting out the television ratings for all the major uh, soccer events that are on television every weekend, um, has pointed out that the Premier League TV ratings this season were very, very strong in a lot of markets that don't actually have MLS teams. And I saw some responses to that, including from some Atlanta fans saying, hey, look, you know, here in Atlanta... Uh, we're really into MLS, and Liga MX probably pulls very, very good TV numbers here, too, in Atlanta. So I don't want to dwell on this too much, but I'm wondering uh, if you would like to respond to the critique that's out there that maybe Major League Soccer, and I want to reiterate, this is the league that's done it, not the clubs, Yeah. but the, the league would have been, and its TV partners would have been better advised to not schedule fixtures at the same time as the Champions League final? That's an interesting one. Um, I don't know the process there. You know, I, I don't know why Atlanta isn't in a, a 7.30 time slot, you know, as opposed to, to 3.30. I, I, I don't have the answer to that. I don't know. Um, it's kind of odd. You know, is, it, is there a reason why? Because if there's a reason why, there's really no argument here. I don't, I don't know. I don't know why that would be the case. Um, I don't think it's as big of a deal either uh, as some have made it out to be because while I would love to be able to sit and watch that game and, and consume it live, um, I'm going to be okay not seeing it. It's not going to ruin my day. And I think a lot of Atlanta United fans 
um, and a lot of other you know fans around the league who have games. There's a few games going on at that time. I, I think it'll be okay. I mean, we're at a point now where if if you are, I think where it's hard is if you are a Chelsea or a Manchester City fan while also being a fan of your local team. Those are the people who you know that that stinks for. And there's um there's there's Chelsea supporters groups here. There's Manchester City supporters groups here. Those are the people that are really going to struggle, and they're going to have to make a decision. They're going to have to possibly watch from the bins. They're going to have to stay home and, and maybe listen to us while they're watching the game. Like it's all tough, and, and that's where it's tough for other Premier League fans or other just soccer fans. I don't know how much of an issue it really is. Um, getting to the, the Premier League ratings and, and how they're better in some non-MLS markets, I do think that the local team gives people an opportunity to maybe not pay as much attention to a league on the other side of the ocean. Um, yeah. That's not good or bad. I mean, a lot of times the timing doesn't really make a difference in that because you can watch a Premier League game in the morning, you can go watch your local team in the evening or in the afternoon, all's well. Uh, I I think it's more complicated in the U.S. because of Liga MX. And I'd love to know the comparison of Liga MX ratings in cities, Premier League ratings in cities. Um, if you want to look at other leagues, I, I don't know if the ratings are, are big enough on a regular basis to look at. I know we're talking like a Classico in Spain. That's a huge game and a huge rating. Um That'll be a big deal, especially if they put it on ABC here coming up soon now that the, the La Liga is moving to ESPN. That could be massive. That could be really cool. But I, I, don't, I don't know where it falls because as big as the Premier League is worldwide and as you know, much attention as it generates, Liga MX ratings beat it on a regular basis in the United States like by a pretty large amount. And I, I do think when we get into these ratings conversations, it is very easy to forget that your average Premier League game doesn't pop a huge rating. Your big games do, and they beat other games from MLS a lot of times, although your big MLS games can pop a rating. Liga MX in general is better, but it's the same thing. Their big games pop a huge rating. Their smaller games don't really pop a rating. What I take out of that is MLS has to continue to build compelling storylines, compelling teams, star players and have those big matchups. It doesn't have enough of them at times. Yeah. And that's needed because the average rating is one thing when you're factoring in, you know, every premier league game is on something. I mean, we're not talking about the peacock ratings on, on streaming. Uh, every Liga MX game is available pretty easily. Not every MLS game is available to everybody unless they, they do the out-of-market package on ESPN+. Plus. So they do have to share the wealth a little bit about putting teams maybe that don't draw as much on national TV from time to time. Because you need that. You need to grow, do that to grow the league. But MLS, in my opinion, needs to continue building the storylines. But most importantly, needs a consistent time for Game of the Week. It's critical you don't know when the big game's going to be every week in this league. You know, the, the Sunday afternoon, late afternoon on the East Coast, early afternoon on the West Coast slot for Atlanta-Seattle, that's not typical on ABC for MLS. Have a regular time. I, I hope that's the next package. If I get anything out of the next MLS TV package, it is 
a prime game of the week, same time slot, same channel, same day, every single week. Monday Night Football revolutionized the NFL. Then Sunday Night Football took it to another level. Yeah. Um, you know, you know when NBA games are going to be on TNT. During the regular mm-hmm. season, you know. You might want your team to be in there more, looking at UTNT in Atlanta. Come on, let's get that happening. But you know when it's going to be. You know, Major League Baseball, the Sunday night game of the week, that was historic for years and years and years. MLS doesn't have that. They desperately need it. They need flex scheduling, too. Uh, And that might be in the next TV package as well. But Uh, they need that time slot because right now... It goes hand in hand. Yeah. Like, you know when... It's got to be... If if they say, okay, Sunday at 1 o'clock is going to be our major feature national TV window each week. By the way, that would make a lot of sense because you're you're coming out of Premier League at that time. It might make a lot of sense. Might be too early for your West Coast, so maybe you you adjust it. But let's say it's Sunday at 1 o'clock. That's part one. Jason's absolutely right. This is something that NASCAR has really struggled with. They've finally gotten back to that now. Mm -hmm. The NBA Mm -hmm. struggled with it for a while. They've finally gotten back to it. You you pick your feature slot, but then you also have uh, have to have the flex schedule. 100%. It's it's no disrespect to any club in this league right now. But, man, Austin's on national TV a lot right now. Is that helping the league? I don't know. I think in their case it might be. In, in their case, it might be. Yeah, I think they're. I think they're drawing right now. I think that's a really engaged fan base. Um, what I'd be curious is when they have games at home. Do people in Chicago or Minneapolis watch that? Like right now, I think Austin is like, yes, I'm going to watch this, and they're getting great local ratings. No, that's a, that, that's a great question. And Stephen, thank you for your comment. By the way, I was wondering if anyone was going to pick. Champions League over Atlanta United. Steven says he is. He's going to a bar to watch Chelsea. Yeah, I get I was, it. I, I, I totally get that. And I am really curious. I am curious if it's going to have uh, any impact on the attendance. I think it might slightly. But I also wonder, Steven, if you're still in here, uh, did you give your ticket to someone else? Like, is someone going to use your ticket? That, uh, I'm curious to, to know that as well. Really quick question before we go from John Roper. How many players are going to be out for the international break? I don't think we know don't conclusively know yet. yet the answer to that. Yeah, don't know yet. I, I think Joseph and Ronald Hernandez are possibilities for Venezuela. Um, we know Barco was called up to the U23s for Argentina for friendlies, not for World Cup qualifiers. So that could be denied. He's been injured, so it wouldn't be surprised if that's denied. Um, we know that no U.S.-based players were called up for the Nations League semis and final as of yet. That roster could obviously change if there's an injury, but it probably won't. For the Gold Cup later, there could be. And I would actually expect some call-ups from Atlanta in that because that won't be – the group that's playing in Nations League for the U.S., it won't be that same group again in July for Gold Cup. I would expect players like Miles Robinson, Brooks Lennon, maybe George Bellow, all could be called up for that. And that's going to be tricky because that's a call-up you can't decline. That's a call-up because it's a, a continental competition that cannot be declined. There's no USA U23 camp or no, anything no, like that, nothing, right? Like now that they're out of the Olympics, nothing, they're... Nothing. That's done. Okay, no, but well, I think that Gold Cup team could be very heavily younger skewed. Yeah. 
By the way, Copa America could be moving to the United States. I've seen different things. Uh, there was a lot of talk out of Colombian radio on that yesterday. Um, some people that I know and trust have kind of poured some cold water on that, but I don't know if they're going to be able to get it done on the timeline they're working on right now, playing it all in Argentina. They shut down their domestic competition for a week to try to get caught up on vaccinations and stuff, and I don't know if they're going to make enough progress. I don't know what that looks like because they've got a semifinal and a final in their domestic cup to finish next week uh, on Tuesday and Friday. We'll see if that gets done. Uh, you'd have to move it here very quickly and get things booked because there's about three weeks. Um, I don't know. I mean, it, it makes a lot of sense if they had done it sooner, but I don't know how they do it. They could, and they could have open venues in Florida, obviously Mercedes-Benz if they wanted to, in the southeast, would you, you want to include Charlotte? You want to include Nashville, who are not doing Gold Cup? Uh, you could do Bank of California and Dignity Health out in California if you wanted to do that. They're not doing Gold Cup. There's other venues in Texas you could do. They could do it and make more money than playing it behind closed doors in Argentina, and it would be safer. But there are so many logistics to bring into that with teams coming off of World Cup qualifiers, with fans potentially traveling. I don't know. How many teams are in Copa America? 16? 10. 10. It's just 10. It's just the South American teams this year. You know, you know what you could do? Um, you could bring them all into South Florida and play at Dolphin Stadium, Inter-Miami, mm -hmm. and maybe FIU's football stadium in Boca Raton. You, like, could, you could just base everyone in Miami and use three or four venues there and get it done that way. You could. Uh it's a possibility, and if you want to expand it and include a couple venues up in Orlando, you could do that as well. You have Exploria, you have UCF Stadium that you could use. You could bring um, that, the whole Copa America here and play it at Mercedes-Benz Stadium, and I will camp out at Mercedes-Benz Stadium for a month. <laughs> It'd be a lot of fun. I'm in. All right. Uh, Saturday, we'll be on at 3 p.m. on 92.9 The Game for the Five Stripes Countdown. Kickoff will be at 3.30 and we'll be back with you next Wednesday at 2 p.m. for another edition of Stoppage Time here on the 92.9 The Game Facebook page. Really great questions today and, and comments. Thank you all for joining. This was a lot of fun. Enjoy the Europa League final. That's about to kick off with Manchester United and Villarreal, and we'll get ready for another weekend in MLS. See you guys soon. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.